0: Here he is, the legendary songwriter, the one and only desmond child desmond what's going on?
1: Wow, so much is going on. I've been uh you know producing uh co-producing with Marty Fredrickson, of the band from Finland called the Rasmus, who I'd worked with many years ago, and we're we're back in the saddle and making their next album at the same time I've been working on my um Um, it's a Broadway show called Cuba Libre. And it's the true story of my family before and after the Cuban revolution. And so while all that's happening, I've been, you know, promoting my book, living on a prayer, big songs, big life. You know, this, this little thing, right? Yeah. This little thing right here.
0: Yeah. I have a copy. Unfortunately, I, uh, I, I bought it a while back. And I just with the holidays and stuff, I, I did not have time to, to finish it, which is uh, a bummer because I, I uh, didn't make it very far. But it was fascinating in, in your story of uh, w- with your mom and all that kind of stuff. It was it was uh, it's, it's a crazy, crazy good read. I wish that we had this scheduled at a different time of year when uh, things weren't so crazy with the holidays. But uh, yeah, I know it's six or seven years to to get it finished. Was that seven years consistently or or sporadic spread out over that period of time to finally get to the final product?
1: Well, it wasn't like every day, but probably every month I'd get together with my collaborator, um, David Ritz, and we'd always pick some kind of uh, exotic location uh, and just, you know, just dig into the book for two or three days. And then we'd go away and he'd be working on stuff and sending me stuff and I'd be editing. So, I mean, work was going on the whole time. But, you know, other things were happening, like life. And so as new things started coming along, we said, oh, well, we have to put that in the book, uh, like meeting Barbara Streisand and writing a song for her called Lady Liberty and, and co-producing that with her for her last studio album called Walls. And so there's a whole chapter later in the book, I mean, it's really detailed and it's called Barbara Land. And so, uh, you know, it was a lifelong dream of mine to be able to work with the greatest singer of all time. So uh, I was doing that and then I got asked to um, perform at the Odeon of Herodotus Atticus in the Acropolis at the foot of the Parthenon. And I did a benefit show for the Acropolis Museum Called Desmond Child rocks the Parthenon, and it was dedicated, you know, to the return of the Parthenon sculptures that have been kind of uh, held hostage at the British Museum for the last two hundred years. And so, you know, it's it, it was very very fulfilling. Alice Cooper uh, came to sing, and so did Bonnie Tyler, the Rasmus, of course, uh, Rita Wilson, Kip Winger, and a host of other. Fantastic performers that we had a a eighteen piece all female string uh orchestra, and then at the end we had sixty a sixty voice choir join us all okay. around this 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 uh circular stage, holding these golden you know or you know glowing orbs and so all of that was filmed, so we're we're making a documentary you know a little bit at a time. Where like the central uh, story is I'm going to Greece and I get to be a star for one night one night only and so um that that's kind of the um the kind of thing we're hanging everything on so you know at this point in my career, I've turned seventy years old and so I'm sort of in the place where I want to you know kind of do everything I can to you know, pull my legacy together. And um, you know, I want to be able to turn that over to my sons who are now they they turn 21, our twin sons, Roman and Nero. And so, you know, it, it's that time, you know, where you're you're fighting in the trenches. I mean, you start out the orphan wandering through life, and then you become this wanderer. And then you become the, you, you find your cause, you become a warrior. And then finally the warrior finally caves in and becomes the martyr. And then from being the martyr, you eventually, hopefully become wise and become the wise man. So I'm in that transition now.
0: Well, for one, let me just say that for 70 years old, I mean, my God, who is that? You look incredible. but, you know, as, as far as your legacy, there's so many songs that you've written. And when I would tell people they're coming on, you know, they'd say he's a songwriter, they'd ask what songs. And I'm like, you know, it's really more uh, like what songs didn't he write? But then you had an interesting uh, way in, uh, of putting it where you said, of the 4,000 songs I've written, a uh, 1,000, let's say, go on to records. Of those, 80, uh, 80 end up in top 40, maybe 20 in the top 20. Of those 20, 10 in the top five. Uh, and then uh, maybe six or seven number ones. So it took four thousand songs to get to a handful of number one records. But that, I mean, which is, uh, but it just seems like there's there's uh, so many more than that. I mean, I you know, do you even uh, can you even keep track of all of the massive songs that you've written?
1: Well, that's what my um, publishers at BMG yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know my other publishers at Universal do. And also ASCAP uh, where I've been a proud member since 1978. And you know, they keep track of my, you know, performances and licensing and it's, and you know, it's like, that's their job. My job to, to, you know, keep living life so I can write songs about it.
0: Is it really only uh, six or seven number ones though? Is that, is that really true? Well, there were number
1: ones in other countries, like I Was Made for Loving You was number one only in one country, even though it was like top three, top two, all over the world. Um, You know, my Kiss song, um, which I co-wrote with Paul Stanley, and that was number one only in Australia, I just recently found out, so it it, kind of added like another number one to the list.
0: Yeah, Wow. Well, you know, speaking of Kiss, you were supposed to come on here uh, a few weeks ago. We had to reschedule, but then uh, a couple of days later, after it was, it was uh, supposed to happen, I see you on the Kiss uh, pay-per-view, and I'm like, God damn, I got canceled on for Kiss, uh, which I, <laughs> I don't. Blame you. But, uh, anyways, uh, how was it being at the at the final show and, and celebrating their legacy? And do you really believe that it will be the final Kiss show?
1: I absolutely do believe it's the final show because they have so many more exciting things to do with their brand. I mean, I really believe in, you know, these avatars and, um, you know, I went to see the ABBA Voyage show in London. I went twice and I was just blown away. I mean, these people look like they were right on stage. And then when the close-ups, you know, that you would see on the screens on the side, you'd see, you know, sweat on the, I mean, you know, crooked little teeth and a little mole over here and a little, you know, chicken pox scar over there and hair, you know, kind of going everywhere. And um, it was so realistic. And then when you know more about ABBA, you realize, you know, that even though their music sounded so happy, most of those lyrics were so sad they're very melancholy and that is also a traditional to uh Swedish music uh you know folkloric music you know these happy little you know tunes and then they sing about you know very very sad things and so um you know seeing these these avatars come to life with these incredible light shows you know where like the lights go all around you and the sound was so great and you know, I, I believe in that because more people around the world, eventually it'll become affordable to move these shows around and more people will be able to see acts like KISS and, and you know, ABBA in all their glory, you know, at the, at the top of their, of their youth and, and energy. And I think that that's, that's a great thing because then it's like KISS forever.
0: Well, the the ABBA Voyage thing, is it just... uh, I mean, I've seen photos and stuff, but is it just uh, essentially being at an an ABBA show? It's just these avatars, like, on screen? Yes. And, like, that's
1: it? They're they're realistically performing their songs, and it's cool how they cross in front of each other, but the lighting show that goes with it is very impressive. And then they have a live 10-piece band that comes out, you know from under the this, this, this stage off to the side and they're playing. So it's live music with these avatars and you, you don't see the difference. you know. It's like they're there and the band is there. And I just thought it was so exciting how they combined live elements with these um, other elements. And they built a special arena for it in London that seats 3000 people. And it's packed every show. I think these investors, um, you know, are going to make their money back. I mean, you know, it costs, I heard it costs like $100 million to create the show. But now that they've perfected all of this um, technology, I'm sure that, you know, the other artists that follow suit will, will be able to be made more economically.
0: Well, yeah, I just uh, read the other day, uh, Gene, uh, Gene, had said that they're going to put $200 million into these things to take them to the next level. So I, I am curious to see, you know, obviously nobody really knows the actual plans, but it will be uh, interesting to see. But uh, on another, it's a little bit of a different animal, but you mentioned you were on the the, uh, the board of ASCAP. And I know there's some uh, concerns there about AI. Uh, I think you've even went to to some hearings about it and you had a great way of explaining the concerns as three C's consent, credit and compensation. Uh, because AI, especially, you know, it seems like this year, it's just been getting, uh, it, it is getting out of control. And, and you know, now it's like, you even start to question, you know, things that you see online, whether it's it's real or AI generated. And, you know, I, I know of, of magazines that are writing articles, uh, using AI and all, all sorts of stuff. It's, it's really, uh, it's fascinating, but it's also, uh, it's also a little scary, I think.
1: I, I think it is scary because these companies came in and they scraped all the music out of Spotify and YouTube and Google and in every direction and put it into their you know massive whatever servers that they have, and then they you know use what we created to create new things. Now it's, you know, they, these companies are saying, well, it's fair use. Well, you know what? It isn't fair use because there are copyright laws already in place that they're breaking. And so they need to be reminded of that. And also, they have the technology to be able to show what they took. And they need to be transparent about that. And then we need to figure out okay, if you're going to want to use, somebody's work or a body of work, go to them and say, we'd like to put this into our system. What do you think about that? And they either go yes or no. And you know, the lot, you know, some artists are, yeah, use it all, you know, power to the people, whatever. And some other people are more, you know, they want to have more control over all of that. And so having, you know, uh, consent, first of all, Then getting credit, you know, for this usage, we've used, you know, these many bands and these many artists, we use these songs that went into, you know, this thing that we're presenting. And then also if that is used in a commercial purpose because it is used in a commercial purpose, why? Because they have a subscription model. So they're bringing in and will bring in billions of dollars that we will never get to see. And it's, it, you know, they took our jobs. You know, <laughs> they're taking our job And so, you know, that is very, very concerning. Because then what is anything worth? You know, what what what's the point of copyright then? It it destroys yeah. the basis of our careers. And we can't just be, you know, oh, do it for the love of it and be hobbyists when you have to go and work, you know, you know, desk job or fast food or whatever uh, to keep, you know, lights on. And so, you know, ASCAP, uh, we have, you know, we're close to a million members. That's a lot of people that are looking to see, you know, if, you know, if their music is used, that we're there you know, to collect it for them. And all not only in America, but you know, in reciprocal agreements we have all over the world. So this is the other point, you know, recently the EU started, you know, doing some groundbreaking uh, restrictions on the use of AI. So we're waiting, you know, right now to see exactly what those are. And um, there are hearings going on in, in Washington and we want to make sure that, you know, we're at the table. Um, and it's almost, you know, it's one of the few things that's really bipartisan. Because if you look at it, every single one of those senators and, and uh, you know, congressmen, they're writing books. They don't want their books just, you know, taken without them, sure. you know. So uh, uh, on both parties or all three parties or however, however many parties there are. If you create something and you take the time to do it and you take the time away from exercising or being with your family, taking care of yourself, to sacrifice, to make something for the world, you you should be compensated for it. And that's just the basic premise of capitalism. You know, willing buyer, willing seller. What we don't want is the government to, you know, lay down a compulsory rate and say, okay, we figured it out. Uh, you know, those companies will just, um, you know, give us, you know, a kind of rental fee that then we will spread out. But that doesn't give us consent. You know, that doesn't give us credit. Yeah. And so we, we, we can't go in that direction. So we want it to be like everything else. If you want to use a song in a movie, you have to go to the publishers. And say, we're offering this. And then it's split 50 50 between the sound and the copyright. 50 50. So the publishers and the writers, you know, they get the 50, and the the artists and the record company get the other 50. And, you know, most cases, the artists are also the songwriters, so they get paid twice. And so, you know, that's the way it's gone. To, um, you know, be able to license the usage of music for the last, you know, 50 years or however long it's been, maybe longer. But now, you know, this AI business has given, you know, certain companies the idea that maybe before they even put out, you know, a movie or, or you know, put, even put the sound to it, they'll do a buyout. So they buy you out and you're no longer even credited on the song. They said, well, oh, look, wow. you know, we'll give you, we'll you $10,000 for your score for this little movie. And, you know, okay, but you never get, you know, because in, in the case of, of, you know, film and TV, you, the company that makes it has to own the publishing or control it. Because you can't all of a sudden decide, you know, I don't like my, how my song came out in that movie. Take it out of the movie. And, you know, that that is un, unworkable. But what we do get and count on is the writers and composers share of the performance. And that's what ASCAP collects. It's a very important part of, you know, the money that comes in. And, um, you know, if they're going to buy the... the 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 songwriter out you know a guy who can't you know can't wait you know two years until that movie finally comes out to maybe get something you know from the movie you know so sometimes you know younger starting out people might cave and then establish a you know a business done that way so, you know, we, you know, there are organizations like uh, Your Music, Your Future, that, um, you know, uh, like it was started to, to make people aware, look, you have a choice. You can do it. Nobody's stopping you. But remember that in the end, you know, it will be bad not only for you, but for everybody else on that side of the business. So you know, I'm very you know involved with you know songwriters' uh, rights, and um, you know my mother was a songwriter, and she had songs on records. She never made a penny because you know in Latin music where she was writing, you know they didn't pay, and what was a poor lady like that who lived in the projects with her you know two kids, single mom? Where was she gonna get a lawyer to fight that, you know? And so she basically wrote for the love of it because she couldn't live without writing songs. And she also loved the idea, well, maybe I'll get a hit someday and maybe we can move to a mansion on Miami beach. And well, <laughs> I it came to be, cause I bought four mansions and I gave her one.
0: <laughs> Jesus, wow. Did she ever, when you started out, did she ever, Since uh, she was a writer too? Did you guys ever like collaborate early on? on we did. And any projects? Not only, wow. more later
1: on, more later on, because I was giving her songs to translate from English to Spanish. And we'd work together oh. on those translations. Yeah.
0: Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. And wasn't so, the... Uh,
1: she actually yeah. was on Bad Out of Hell 3. She wrote the oh, lyrics no to an intro called Monstro. And then it, oh, it wow. was a it went into a song that I had co-written with Holly Knight. And um,
0: yeah. Isn't, uh, didn't they, the, the uh, Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame, uh, they they use uh, a picture of her or a sculpture of her or something as, as their symbol or something yeah. like that?
1: Yes, absolutely, here's, here's one. Ooh, I am so happy these days. Oh. This is a sculpture oh, wow. of my mother called La Musa. And this the original one was done in 1954 right around when i was born when i was like one year old there was this, a sculptress that uh obsessed about my mother and her name was uh lee burnham and so she made it you know it was about this size in clay i don't know how it survived all those moves but i have it intact in our house in nashville so when we i came to um i, co- I co-founded the latin songwriters hall of fame with Latin producer Rudy Perez. And, um, you know, we created the award. This one uh, is in, you know, this is a silver one and there's a bronze one for the honorees and there's a silver one for the inductees. And so, um, you know, that's that's what we do. And uh, right now it looks like our next gala is gonna be April 4th at the Hard Rock Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. So we're we're gearing up and if people want to find out more about it, they can follow us on Instagram at uh, La Musa Awards or the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame, or they can go on our website, which is Latinsonghall.org and stay with stay with it because we need more, more members, more people involved. And, um, you know, it's a great thing. We've existed now for 12 years. Last year we actually had the, you know, because we had to skip a couple of years because of COVID, but we had our what we called our tenth anniversary last year, and Rudy and I were both inducted, and we we finally you know earned uh, our spot in the hall of the greats of Latin music.
0: Wow, and that that sculpture was just beautiful. That's that's uh, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So I want to. Uh, cover uh, your backstory just a little bit, because uh, obviously your first uh, real big project was uh, with KISS when uh, I think you met Paul Stanley when you had your own band, uh, Desmond Child and The Rouge. What uh, what was it, how did the, the Paul connection happen? What Was it something with with the band that drew him in or, or how did you guys get connected?
1: Well, you know, Paul is an artist, so he um, is very visually oriented. And uh, Desmond Child and Rouge, we made very creative posters and uh, we put them all around New York City, um, you know, in places we shouldn't have, like the, um, you know, all the sides of construction, you know, all of that plywood where they all the posters are, that's controlled yeah. by, the I, by the Irish mafia, by the way. And if you put your poster on top of their poster, they know where you live. I mean, it was really crazy. Somebody <laughs> came, came up to us and said, you know what you're doing? It's not that it's illegal, but you want to be alive, right? <laughs> Don't do it. So we um, had posters, you know, on, uh, you know, we, we resorted to putting our posters on, on uh, you know, light poles and things. And uh, Paul was walking in the village and, you know, he could walk anywhere he wanted to in those days because he was still incognito nobody knew what he looked like. So he saw this poster of me and these gorgeous women, and uh, he was intrigued probably by the women more than me, even though I was pretty. Um, (laughs) And and, um, he came to see us at a little place called Tracks, which was underground, truly an underground club on West 72nd Street between Columbus and Broadway. And uh, we were playing down there during the time that we were still making our first album and um, we were getting ready to go on and there was no dressing room. There was just like on a side curtain. And behind that curtain, we were like kind of getting dressed and everything. And the stage was like one step you were on the stage. Right. So Paul, Paul came in and he poked his head around the, the, the you know, behind the curtain said, Hey, I'm Paul Stanley of kiss. And we were like, uh really like we didn't know what he looked like he could be a poser you know and said well I just want to let you know that um George Harrison of the Beatles is sitting at the front table and at that moment I was like oh my god I just wanted to go take a nap I got so nervous when I get nervous (laughs) I get sleepy I don't get like hyper you know he goes like oh we're gonna go to sleep like (laughs) narcolepsy right and so <laughs> I, I, I looked behind the curtain, you, yep, 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 there he is, George Harrison of the Beatles. And um, we did the show, we killed it, and Paul came backstage and said, you know, we should try writing a song together. And I said, okay, well, you know, we're making our first album, why don't you co-write a song with me for our album, and then I'll write a song with you for your group. And he's like looking at me like, you don't know Gene.
0: You know. So how did you find out that he he really was the real Paul Stanley, though?
1: No, I I kind of I believed him, You know, maybe it was the hairy (laughs) chest. I I I just (laughs) yeah, looked looks like the right hairy chest. You know, you know. Also, he has a distinctive physique. You know, really wide shoulders, you like, Michelangelo hands. You know, and all this. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, striking man. And uh, so, you know, we he co-wrote this song with me that I had already started with our guitarist, David Landau, John Landau's brother. And um, and the song was called The Fight and it's on Desmond Child and Rouge's first album. And then uh, which is available, by the way, on BMG. Uh, we did. We reissued our two albums. And then um, he invited me to come to a lunch break at SIR where KISS was rehearsing their next tour. And so I get there exactly at one and I'm walking in and the other guys are kind of piling out, kind of like bumping into me in the hallway, kind of like brushing past me. And I get to the room and it was just Paul all by himself. And there was a piano, uh, you know, a beautiful... Uh, nine foot Steinway piano like this one off to the side and had a a big canvas cover. And um, we pulled the, you know, just didn't have any usage for a piano on stage, but it was just, you know, it's always there. So we pulled it back. I sat at the piano because by the way, you know, people, you know, sometimes call me like one of the fathers of, you know, eighties rock or something like that. I don't play one note of guitar even though my mother was a guitarist. Can you believe that? And so, um, we sat at the piano together and started writing, you know, we had this idea of combining this kind of like um, majestic kind of sound, you know, for the verses. And then, um, you know, this kind of more like this kind of driving Motown beat for the, for the. Um, it wasn't disco, it was like a Motown. And, um, we wrote, "I was made for loving you," and um you know the idea was to put heavy metal guitars onto a dance beat. It had never been done before, and we we changed the course of pop music because after that song, then in rushed you know prince and and Michael Jackson beat it, and all of these you know Madonna George Michael, everybody using guitars in pop you know, music that had a lot of, you know, R&B basage, basis. And so, um, you know, if you listen to I Was Made For Loving You, it's like, I was made for loving you, baby. You were made for loving me. Standing in the shadow of love, waiting for the heartache to come. Right? So it had that kind of... um, anthemic kind of cinematic feeling you know and the verses were like Romeo and Julia like tonight I will give it all to you you know it's like almost operatic and then sure, yeah. uh you know then at you know in the break he sings those high falsetto notes I mean if you listen to that song it has a lot it you know you get your money's worth with that song you know that it it it's really become an international anthem. If you go to Athens, Greece, there's not a a cab you get into that doesn't have that song playing. You know, it's like unbelievable. People love that song. So that's why it was so strange that, you know, Gene hated the song. I think he was kind of jealous he didn't write it with us, whatever. Uh, But he also (laughs) felt it was very kind of off-brand for what, you know, his vision of KISS was, was much, you know, kind of like square music, you know, like boom, you know, stadium anthems that, you know, were like more like marches. And this one had a groove. And uh, that's why it took off all over the world because people love groove no matter what. I mean, 100%. later on, later on when when I worked uh, collaborating with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, you give love a bad name, you know, the, the, the guitar line, it's like almost like Billie Jean, right. Which is or the, 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 you know, uh, Eurythmics, these dreams are made of these. So those were kind of like little, you know, kind of pop R and B influences that started, you know, changing the sound of the 80s. And so, um, you know, Gene always, you know, professed that he hated the song. And so, I, I, you know, he was in that movie, Why Him, with the rest of the band. Do you remember that, with James Franco?
0: I, actually, my fiance and then, just watched that.
1: And then all of a sudden, it's like, they're, they're like standing in somebody's living room, and like in full makeup, singing, I was made for loving you. And, like, he's like got, a, got a smile on his face. I says, you know what? Maybe the check was big. And that's what he was smiling, he was smiling about.
0: But I noticed
1: one thing oh, at, the, yeah. at this final show. At one point, you know, towards the end of the show, uh, Paul flies over the audience. You know, he's on this, like, special, you know, thing. He flies over the audience to the remote stage. And that's where he sings, I was made for loving you. And I realized Gene can't even be on the same stage when that song is sung. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. Uh, well, for, I, I also, his age, I can't believe he, uh, I mean, when I was watching that pay per view, I'm just like, my God, I can't believe he flies across the arena. Uh, he doesn't really appear to be like strapped into anything. I mean, he just holds on and goes. And uh, well, I mean, you know. Like, Hey, I, a great I, show. I, I'm,
1: I mean, I would never do it because I'm like scared of heights. <laughs> so that's probably why I didn't become a rock star, because I was just not willing to fly over the audience. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's how you met Bon you know, Jovi, right? Paul, right? He introduced you.
1: Yes, Paul. Paul has been a mentor and a tremendous friend to me, and um, he gave my number to John Bon Jovi. And they came back from a tour of Europe where Bon Jovi was on the bill with a kiss. And, um, you know, I went over there to write with, you know, these two long haired dudes from New Jersey. I didn't know that they weren't writing with me for, for Bon Jovi. They were writing hoping that I, as a kind of pop writer would help them get a cover with another pop, popular artist uh, so that they could bring more money into the band. But when I got there, I had a title in my back pocket uh, that I had written, you know, just in case things got slow. And, it, you know, I pulled it out right away and it said, you give love a bad name. That was my title. And John, like, you know, was, he was like a little distracted, a little bit shy, you know, looked me right in the eyes and his face lit up and, you know, he smiled. I never saw so many teeth, you know? <laughs> He's just like, and I said, oh my God, that guy's got it, it. He's a star. And uh, we went on to, you know, that was our first song. And, um, you know, he threw in Shot Through the Heart because he had a song on a previous album uh, called Shot Through the Heart. And so we're not ones to waste any good hooks. You know, <laughs> You will even, you know, steal it from ourselves and put it into the next thing if it hasn't, you know, really taken off. And so, um, you know, I had a, a song that I had written for Bonnie Tyler that, you know, I had solely written. So I had, you know, I gave myself permission to uh, bring it to that session and say, why don't we rewrite this melody? You know, so, you know, that's where the, the melody for, you know, the chorus came from. And, uh, you know, it's like it was magic. And we always had chemistry together, the three of us writing songs.
0: I would imagine when you write a song like Living on a Prayer or, or uh, you give love a bad name I mean there's such massive earworms you've got to know right then and there that that you've struck gold and this is going to be a hit right I mean there's there's no way that that those songs uh, wouldn't have of uh, ever been hits I don't know I mean so many things can go wrong
1: and I've written you know so many you know really what I think are great songs that didn't really catch the public's imagination at that time um, you know one with Bon Jovi um, I think it still went number one like on adult contemporary radio called you want to make a memory and um, it's one of my favorite songs uh, and you know I I I wasn't sure the production was you know holding up the song strong enough they kind of did this kind of linear kind of you two with or without you kind of You know production with it and i saw it as a more you know dramatic song and you know at that time music was changing too you know we were going you know we went through the the, you know hurricane nirvana and uh you know most bands did not survive you know uh smells like teen spirit like they just could not get they could not get on MTV. They could not. And Then you know, very quickly after that, they couldn't even get on VH1, and then radio stopped playing their 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 music, and they instantly became you know legacy bands. And you know they they still like you know a lot of them still exist, and they they and some of them can sell huge, you know like Motley Crue, you know like, they're you know, they're epic, but. You know, it's, it's not, you know, like what it was. Um, not so much performance-wise, but I'm saying uh, in terms of the um, airplay. But, sure. you know, luckily, luckily, finally, everyone got tired of these shoegazing, mo- you know, monotoned, down, you know, caved in dudes with hair on their face um, and uh, their sad stories and they're kind of angry vibes. And in it, unbelievably, my airplay on the songs that I contributed to has gone up like triple in the last couple of years, especially through COVID. People look to those songs to give them hope. In fact, in, in, in fact Uh, There was one day in Chicago where everyone had agreed at a certain appointed time. I think it was three in the afternoon. Everybody opened their windows and they all started singing, living on a prayer, the whole city. How cool is that? Oh
0: yeah. That's insane.
1: How cool is that? And so, um, yeah, you know, we've gotten so many stories, um, you know, of people, you know, that said like a song, like living on a prayer gave them the hope to, you know, get through, a loss in their family or um, um, illness, um, you know, some, you know, losing their jobs or, you know, all that kind of things. And, you know, we always got letters saying, you know, that, you know, I'm sure that Bon Jovi got many more than me, but I got a lot as well. And there was a letter that I got that talked about a guy who had decided to kill himself. And so he, you know, went, you know, he like drank. And, uh, you know, who knows what, you know, he's not in his right mind. And he drove to the bridge, jumped out of the car. The windows were open. The radio was on, you know, he went up to the railing and he was like leaning to like just throw himself off and living on a prayer came on. And that was his favorite song. So he said, well, that's kind of appropriate that that would be the last song that I would hear. So he went back to the car, sat, you know, to listen to his favorite song before he was going to like really do it. By the time it got to the final chorus where, you know, that bar three and it modulates up, he just drove home and lived. And so wow. Bon Jovi saves lives. That's what I say. What a sp- you know? wow. so, so, you know, those are, that's, you know, it, it, those are the things that say, you know, like, wow, it was worth it you know the sacrifice you know to you know live like a studio rat in the studio all the time not not be able to partake in in all the things everybody else was doing um and just keep you know nose to the grindstone you know to be able to you know create a career out of music cuz it's a it's a privilege to be able to have a career based on something that you love doing, like you can't wait to wake up and do it. I mean, that's the most, you know, whether that's, you know, go out and, you know, grow your, your garden or whatever it is, or teach your kids or whatever, to have something like music is always renewing itself. It's never boring
0: absolutely one of the you know one of the, the biggest songs uh in your career at least in, in my opinion probably one of the songs you're you're best known for and uh, we don't need to beat a dead horse i think by now everybody knows the backstory of dude looks like a lady and that it's based on on uh, vince neal or loosely based on vince neal whatever but obviously in recent years uh and you can tell that story if you want but there's been a, a quite a bit of controversy uh, lately you know in the, in the wake of uh all the, the the trans community and all that kind of stuff and you know I'm curious uh being a a gay man yourself does the controversy with that song uh that's got to uh, upset you right because
1: no song, I, I never you, heard there was a controversy I never oh, heard just there because was a controversy the second verse says never judge a book by its cover or who exactly. you to loved by your lover that's that's exactly what what we as in the LGBT community want it's like don't judge us by you know what we look like or who we sleep with. you know it, it, you know we're lovable too, and I think that the song you know has a lot of of joy you know and a celebration and think about how long ago we wrote that song nineteen eighty seven and um, very pretty- time. It would, you know, it, you know, that song in particular, I'm very proud of, you know, because I had to drag them into that storyline because, you know, Joe was saying, "Well, we don't want to insult the gay community." I said, "I'm gay, not insulted. Let's do this." (laughs) Um, And so, um, that's the that's the thing, you know, uh, you know, there are people that, uh, you know are kind of like don't even want to be pegged as male or female they're like non-binary or this or that and I think that that's really you know cool and in a way I mean I think it's kind of sexy you know that somebody's just like defining their own boundaries of or or not even boundaries just like the shape of of who they feel they are and not just be like conforming to you know, <laughs> some kind of leave it to beaver idea of what a a family should look like and what a mother should look like and what she should be doing and what the father should be doing and what he should say and how the kids act and I mean all of that I mean we left that be- behind after uh, you know be- you know Woodstock and we you know life just changed never was the same you know people just you know with flowers in their hair naked dancing in the in the in the mud holes, and you know, be, you know, being free to express themselves, you know, yeah, there are some people who, you know, want to go back to this kind of fictitious TV, um, you know, family life that never really existed. Oh, where you know, the spinster aunt? No, she wasn't gay. <laughs> yes, she played golf. Yes, she she was a bit mannish. Uh, well, she did have a little bit of a mustache, whatever. <laughs> he wasn't gay.
0: <laughs> well with 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 that song you you later worked uh, with Vince Neal uh, on on a song actually with with Rick Biotto, I believe, uh, which I, I want to talk about. But was there ever any any uh, discussion with Vince on that? Uh, does he does he even know that 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 song uh, is is loosely uh, uh, based on him?
1: I, when, when I worked with him, I told him the story and he was like, like kind of like perplexed, you know, because, you know, what happened was that, you know, at that time, Stephen and, uh, you know, they were taking a break or something and they decided to go to this bar on the shore, you know, up, you know, south of Boston. And, um, you know, they went in there was like empty So they were like in the booth, like in one corner. And then there was a long bar, you know, with leather stools and almost at the very end was this vision of loveliness, this, you know, mullet, uh, platinum mullet and, uh, you know, the the, the ivory skin, the black painted nails, the jewelry, the curvy figure. And uh, they were all like drawing straws, you know, like who's gonna go over there and, you know, like hit on her, right? Suddenly she turns around and it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue by himself. And so that's when Steven said, oh, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. So, you know, the the day that I went to meet them, they had already moved on from dude looks like a lady to cruising for the ladies because they thought yep. that was more more manly, right? And I told them, that's bad. You know, that I don't think... Van Halen would put that on the B side of their worst record and you know I was trying to be funny and you know I didn't get a laugh uh but you know I said you know they told me the story you know how they you know so well it was dude looks like a lady I said what dude looks like a lady and then Joe said I don't want to insult the gay community it's like I'm gay not insulted let's do this and um you know it, it was a it was the song that brought their career back to life. Because and when Vincent you see uh... what he didn't know nothing about yeah. it till many years later. What?
0: Yeah, but but when when he finally realized when you told him the story, I mean, was he was was he angry or he was just saying oh whatever fuck it?
1: Oh my God, I don't think you know.
0: <laughs> Come on, it's Motley Crue.
1: I don't think there's you know anything that could ever happen. That could, you know, shock them, right? Hello. <laughs> very,
0: very true. How oh, did that whole project. That uh, that the, the I think it was the song "Promise Me," which I don't think it's it's officially available anywhere. But that was uh, you and Rick Beato uh, worked on that with him, correct?
1: We uh, Rick and I wrote it for him, yeah, and for the special show called Remaking Vince Neil. And so they took him, put him on a, it was like a three month project. They put him on a strict diet exercise. Then they even got a facelift for it. And that was all part of the show. You know, that was when reality shows like, wow, you had to, you know, uh, you know, have your like open heart surgery on TV. You know, it's like, (laughs) there was no limit to, you know, the freak show that reality TV, I mean, look, look at, you know what came out of it right (laughs) right. and uh (laughs) it's the jerry springer generation or or revolution let's call it that uh what's happened to America? what's happened to america um so you know it was one of those things where you know it was kind of a hiatus from uh motley and then you know i think katrina the hurricane katrina happened after that and then uh Vince uh came and worked with me and I produced uh an a version for a charity record of Home Sweet Home with Chester from Lincoln Park.
0: I have heard that and it's it it's incredible.
1: So I produced that and I think there's a video on YouTube of us like working on it. It's so cool, you know, and there's Chester and like he was so magical and you know it was really, really great. And um you know, so I mean, I had another cute story about Vince Neal is that I we had to move from this larger house to a smaller house, and you know, we were in Calabasas where you can have like this mega mansion, you know, but nobody it was too hard to drive in and out of you know Hollywood and all that, so we moved to Santa Monica to a smaller house, but we had three dogs, and one of them was a kind of incontinent, very old Cocker Spaniel and Vince's wife was a cocker spaniel rescue person like she, you know the you know she would take them in and take care of them till they passed on and so sassy lived you know she lived another year and a half in style at Vince Neal's mansion in Las Vegas and they they showed me pictures of her little you know basket it was like leopard print you know <laughs> and with her name Sassy, and um you know we had to you know we had our our sons were toddlers, they were like two and a half, and we just couldn't have them running in the same yard as the dogs, you know there was such sure. little room, so we had to give away our dogs, you know, for the sake of our sons, so that that was kind of cute that uh they adopted sassy <laughs>
0: yeah wow are you are you do you uh talk to Vince neal anymore or no?
1: No, not really. We haven't talked, but you know,
0: that promised me is a
1: fantastic song. It really is. Yeah, well, it's
0: great. there's a there's a Promise thing I saw online.
1: Me. It's I'm great. To- there's video. Yeah, and go. uh you know, me being kind of hard on him, you know, yeah, and he yeah, uh, exactly. was very getting you know very frustrating. You know, like he would sing like okay, the note's supposed to go up, and he would sing it down, and and he said, and then he did, it and he says did I do it? I said, no, (laughs) you know, (laughs) no. (laughs) And they did a very cute sequence on on that. So that's a cute thing
0: to watch. It is. Uh, Another uh, notable 80s uh, rock figure you worked with was Sebastian Bach in the 2000s. And you tell this great story of you were doing press to promote your discipline record. So this is what, like 91 or so. You go into a radio station, he's in there uh, before you and he, he's in there just just dogging bon jovi which uh, played a major role in, in getting skid row off the ground and obviously a major role uh in your career as well, well so you were i, I, I mean it, it's
1: just went. you know like i i think it was um snake the guitarist who went to school with john you know and so john had yeah. like you know really wanted snake to be successful and so They put up the money for their equipment and all this. And John actually, you know, helped to edit. And, you know, who knows how much he rewrote of their record. but didn't take any credit, um, nothing. And uh, put them as the opening act on their tour, you know, at the height of their career. And then this kid, you know, who's such a brat. Uh, you know start slagging Bon Jovi on my I was on my way to the radio station to promote my album Discipline it's 1991 already and already I was pissed at him for wearing that t-shirt that said AIDS kills fags you know which then later you know he apologized for but you know still he was always trying to be you know controversial and so you know I'm like you know Told the guy that was driving me to radio station, come on, go through the light. I got to get there because I wanted to burst into that, you know, uh, control room and give him, you know, shit. Tell him, you, you know, you, you like spoiled, ungrateful little bitch, you know, <laughs> to say one negative thing about Bon Jovi when he put you on the map, you know, it's like, I was just so angry, and then, but when I did get on the air, I did I did like go crazy about what he had just done because I I was listening to the station on the way in. It's like, what's he saying? Yeah. What is that? But many years later, he actually came to Nashville to write a song with me, kind of like all was forgiven, and so yeah. he told he told me some wild stories about his times uh, on Broadway uh, in. Um, Oh my God, what, what was that that Broadway Jesus show he Christ was in?
0: Super. What was, was it, it? Jesus Christ Super. No, Jesus no. Jesus Christ
1: Super. No, no, it was, uh, it was like the two characters, you know, like. Um, oh, Jack- Jackal- J- Jekyll and Jackal Hyde? Jekyll and Hyde, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, he told me some pretty amazing stories that I cannot reveal, you know. But <laughs> I think he was like letting me know that, he wasn't quite as homophobic as he seemed, okay?
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so you had a, did you have a conversation with him about that t-shirt that he wore back in the day? No, or, or no,
1: no I, I, gave him, I gave him some slack, you know. I've, you know, I have a, like a 10-year forgiveness policy, you know. If somebody like, you know, does me wrong, I give him 10 years on the outs. And then when, you know, I'm looking at my, okay, 10 years is up. Then it's like, okay, all is forgiven, but it's 10 years, 10 years in like Desmond jail out. You're not in my life. You're out.
0: (laughs) Well, what are your, uh, you know, to that point, what are your thoughts on, on cancel culture these days?
1: I think it's, it's getting crazy. Well, I mean, you know, like uh, in casting. You know, you sh- one should be able to um, play many different kinds of characters in many different cultures. I can understand, like, the racial thing more than I can, like, having a show and it's all about, uh, you know, Italians. And only Italian people can be in the show. Or even in the crew. I mean, it's getting that crazy, you know, yeah. where you have to prove your, you know, national you know, lineage and descendancy, you know, it's almost like, like, awful. It's like proving you're, 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 you know, not a Jew, you know, like, like having to prove that you are purely of one kind of person. And that's not what acting is about. Acting is the exploration of being able to empathize and get into the skin of somebody who's not like you. And I think that in just in that case, the cancel culture is bad. And of course, censorship and burning books and all that. I mean, we're back to the Nazi era here, you know, with this idea of, you know, controlling what everybody thinks, rewriting history. You know, I saw something on TV last night where they were showing this uh, new programming for children and they were showing uh, something that said white people were the ones that liberated the Black people. And so they were showing like Union soldiers, you know, 300,000 Union white, all white, never showed any other kind of person. Native Americans fought, you know, Black people fought, you know, Asian people fought, you know, uh, to, you know, keep the Union together. And uh, there was no side, uh, no sign of of any other kind of race and this new programming that they're doing. It's this cancel, that's cancel culture right there. You know, and and it's a kind of, it's like like going back to like 1950s kind of uh, propaganda of what history was, you know, didn't uh, George Washington never told a lie or whatever, you know.
0: Right, sure. It's like, it's got an opposite effect of, you know, especially like with casting and stuff, where you know they they say that you know everybody's racist everybody's this or that and so they make it such a point to we're only going to cast these types of people or blah 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 but then in turn i, I think it it, it 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 brings more awareness uh, in the wrong way to the types of issues you know what i mean i i guess i feel like especially you know with casting you give the job to whoever uh, fits the role the best who cares exactly. uh, about, the, about our lineage? yeah can I mean, you imagine
1: scarface not being Al Pacino, who came of, he he was of Italian descent.
0: Oh, no. Exactly.
1: You know, say hello to my little friend. I mean, you know,
0: who else? but
1: Al Pacino yeah. should be saying that. And uh, nobody complained till now. You know. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't want to keep you here all day, but the the one thing I, I did really want to get to, uh, because I, you know, there's so many key artists that I, I think everybody sort of, you know, it's like their go-to's when they think of you, and it's Aerosmith, Kiss, Bon Jovi, all that. But in my opinion, one of your most underrated, maybe even overlooked projects, is your work on the Detonator album with Rat, uh, which which is their last record and and the, their heyday. Uh, things things fell apart. Shortly after that, and uh it just had to be crazy being around those guys at that time, especially the the late Robin Crosby rest in peace uh because you know obviously a, a very long uh history with substance abuse issues and and all that but uh, I mean what a phenomenal record and and uh something that that people don't seem to talk about uh, enough when they when they talk well, about your work.
1: this is when you know the kind of rock that you know I was working on fell off the 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 cliff, you know, with Nirvana. Yeah. And, you know, they would sign, literally, they, that's why they call them garage bands. Like A&R guys were like combing the streets of Seattle. If they heard a band playing, they would just knock on the door, say, and, you know, there'd be like 12-year-olds there, 13-year-olds, like practicing guitar. They signed them. You know, they could play three chords. And so that kind of music, by the way, you know uh, art students that could play three chords became stars they they weren't shredders they didn't practice guitar and so the usage of lead guitar solos which were you know done by virtuosos like Richie Sambora and you know Joe Perry Stephen Vai and Eddie Van Halen that failed that fell out of favor and so it was just like People that could just play riffs, you know, like do 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 because that's all could it, like, the they could play. <true. amazing> <laughs> and, you know, they made the most of all of that, you know. Uh, like I said, the shoegazing and hair in their face. And, you know, it's like it was like even like physical structure. You know, the the era that I was used to, like with KISS and Bon Jovi, these were like superheroes with their chests out. Harry chests out, you know, and they would stand, you know, like proud with their hands on their head, look out at the crowd. This other group that came in, their chests were like caved in and they wouldn't even, they were, their shoulders were all humped forward. Their pants weren't tight. You never, you never saw any bulges going on there. (laughs) You know, there was like flannel hangy shirts and t-shirts All everything was like all baggy as opposed to those tight clothes with those you know uh you know form-fitting uh leggings <laughs> and um it was almost like everything had to be the opposite and i think that i mean a lot of great bands came out of that anyway you know that whole you know early nineties, you know, I just love so much of that, you know, kind of all of it, you know, Slipknot, like all all those kind of things like came out in Metallica, all those things came out into this new kind of very cynical era Um, in their lyrics. They weren't about hope. They were about death and, you know, many of them didn't survive. Many of them like killed themselves. You know, it's like so sad because they, you know, their music was leading them down. You know, when you sing stuff and it's always down, it makes you down and you start living your music, you know, in a terrible way. If, you know, it's gotta be a balance, you know, of, you know, light and dark to make art, I think. But, you know, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, fantastic new artists that I would love to work with. I mean, I, I love, you know, you know, my, you know, gay heroes, you know, Sam Smith and Troy Sivan. I mean, I would love to work with them. I would have loved to work with George Michael, who, you know, I met in a shower at the uh this Korean health spa. <laughs> and we made friends, and he oh. actually came to, to my. Uh, nothing happened. Nothing happened. I promise, nothing happened. <laughs> 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 I never saw Harry or but. But that's you know he was very Greek. He had hair everywhere, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, I mean, I would just love to work with Dua Lipa, and um. I mean, there's so many people that en- enliven me. I mean, I just love B- Billie Eilish. I know she has her thing with her brother, and and you know, I just think she's fantastic. And um, you know, new music is is really great. You know, and uh, you know, I just I just think whatever it is, this has to be great. And there are really great new artists, and I want to, you know. I, I want to continue in doing my day job, you know, writing a song here, so writing a song there, you know, with you know whoever wants to to come and write with me. I mean, I think I could learn something from them, and I think they could learn something from me. There's something, there's a give and take there, experience, and also kind of fresh, new perspectives. You know, those things together can create huge success. But, you know, one of the things I've really focused in on is my musical, uh, Cuba Libre. And I think that um, telling a story that's not just four minutes long, it's like two hours long where you walk in the front doors and uh, you're one kind of person. And then when you leave out the side doors, you're transformed because of what you saw. You can never not have experienced it. it because you you spend that much time in letting something touch your soul and your heart and to create works of art that are that are of that length um is something that really excites me and so you know I have a lot of things to live for I mean you know my sons yesterday who are 21 and you know they you know I I was kind of like you know trying to take a little nap because last night I was at uh, uh the players which is a um special private club and I gave a talk and my manager Winston Simone, he uh, interviewed me in front of a very small audience and I signed books and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I was trying to kind of regrouping and my sons came into the room and they, you know, they were very like, they said, you know what? You're overworked and, you know, we want you to be around to, you know, when we have families and, and to see your grandchildren and all of that. You need to just cut things out uh, that you're involved with that you've committed to. Just get out of them, just walk away, and um, you know that's easier said than done, because you know I, sure. I'm, I'm on the I'm on a lot of boards. You know I'm on the Songwriters Hall of Fame board. I'm on the ASCAP uh, board of directors. I'm on the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame uh, board. I'm on the Fountains of Musica. which is trying to put the you know long awaited fountains around the the naked statues in music at the end of music row um and you know there are other organizations that are calling to ask me and you know all those things take time you know and energy and then you have to travel and you have to be there at the board meetings and all that and that's not even like creative work you know to i don't know if i could ever you know i'm Co-producing now, thank God, with Marty Frederickson, the Rasmus, um, and the, the the songs we wrote eighteen songs in Greece together last summer. Like the two of them, a uh, Marty and and Laudy, uh, uh the lead singer came came over. We wrote seventeen songs and we picked ten, and and we've been making the record, you know, starting in September, and we've just finally mixed the first two songs and they came out fantastic. And it feels so good to have completed something, but hey, you know, we got eight more to go and I have to be there, you know, I have to be there and I have to make sure that, you know, it turns out great. Even though I really don't have to, because Marty doesn't need me. It was just kind of like, hey, let's do this together for fun. But, you know, it's like all of these things, you know, I have to like, that's where I'm at right now. Because, you know, every day is like a diamond. On a black velvet cloth. And then, you know, like the jeweler that, you know, has those little pincers takes one diamond and moves it over to the other side. That's one day. And, you know, how many days do I have left? You know, I mean, I'm 70. Am I going to be wanting to do this and work as hard as I do when I'm 80? Well, Clive Davis is working just as hard and he's 90. he's going to be 92. So he's my idol. So I go, okay, well, you know, he's, you know, maybe all that work keeps him going and keeps him healthy and keeps him, you know, alive. Um, And maybe the challenge keeps me young, maybe, you know, but I, you know, I, I really, I'm at that point where I have to really decide, you know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. You know, I I can't just be like, you know, I mean, I'm so competitive that if I know that Diane Warren is in her office on Saturdays, I go, I drive to my office and, and keep working.
0: Uh, It's never a bad thing.
1: I can't let her get, get, you know, she's already (laughs) far ahead of me, but I can't let her get too far ahead of me (laughs) because we're best friends and rivals. (laughs)
0: <laughs> before we wrap this up is there a, a really or how far along in the process is this uh the the Broadway uh show is that something that that will come out in 24 or are we still a little ways off from no
1: that? no we're we a ways off I, I'm we're hoping next fall we could do a workshop you know for two or three weeks here yeah. it is
0: oh wow look at that
1: right and it's the is so that a- that's my is that, that your my mom- mother? No, those are the real pictures of my mother's two younger sisters, Beba and Miriam, and uh, that's Beba, and she was the the climber, and she became the, the, the dictator Batista's mistress, and she was just in her early I 20s. Did,
0: I briefly then, read about that in the book.
1: And then the other one, Miriam, she was a dreamer. And she married a revolutionary, and then it didn't work out, and then she drifted into the arms of Fidel Castro himself. So it's two sisters, two dictators, one island. You do the math. <laughs> that's the elevator pitch. And, and, and so, will you
0: be uh, will will there be an actor portraying you at all in this or, or do you not appear in yes, this at all? Yes,
1: yes, the old grandfather. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, well that's uh... <laughs> that'll be that'll be incredible and and what about this documentary how far how far away are we from that
1: we're doing what is called banking interviews so you know we've you know interviewed paul stanley who actually uh wrote the forward to my uh book and he also was kind enough to uh to read the the forward for my audiobook that you know it's taking like for fucking forever to finish um, but hopefully I'll have that out in the spring. And um, you know, we interviewed uh Richie Sambora and Diane Warren and uh close collaborators, uh Antonina Armado and uh Tim James of Rock Mafia. And we you know, we have really great songs we've done together, like Beautiful Now with Zed and uh songs with Selena Gomez and um you know, I just love working with younger people like that. And they they got it, you know, they produce the records, I just come and write. And it's great. And then I walk away, and then they do the dirty work. Um, And so, you know, I I have, you know, all of that going on. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very full life. You know, and, you know, my husband and I, we we love going to Greece in the summer with our kids. And now this summer, as last summer, our kids are gonna have to work because you know, last, last summer they were interns in uh law offices. And now this year they'll probably be paralegals and while they study for law school. That's what they've determined they're they're gonna become lawyers and so you know, that'll be great. You know, our law, our law bills will go down or be either they'll like really defend us or sue us. We're not kind of, we're not sure what they're going to do.
0: I <laughs> uh, hate also too. one last thing. Didn't you recently, or uh, maybe you still are working with Jojo Siwa, right? Well, one of the
1: songs uh, that I'm not allowed to say the title, I'm not even allowed to say nothing, but I'm telling you anyway, um, Rock Mafia is working with Jojo and one of the songs that we co-wrote together, uh, she did it. And so we're, you know, I'm waiting to hear how it comes out. And, uh, you know, so it's fun, you know, to, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a song with Ava Max uh, called Kings and Queens that made it really big, especially all over the world. So I saw a whole wave of, you know, performance royalties like coming my way from Ava max. So, you know, I have Zed and Ava max. And before that, I like Katy Perry. And, you know, I'm in the 21st century, you know, I didn't just sure. stay back in the eighties and nineties and seventies. Well, seventies, eighties, nineties, 2000, 2010, 2020. Yeah. It's been six decades of rock. and yeah, roll. That's, oh,
0: what a career. So many more things. I, I, uh, we just didn't have time for hopefully would love to have you on again. And, and, uh, talk even even more so thank you so much for for coming on and, and anything uh anything you want to plug uh, as we wrap this up the new book's yes, available yes yes yes
1: my my book my book yes my book living on a prayer big songs big life go on to my uh instagram desmond.child and follow my my crazy life uh the last post was me and uh stevie van zandt you know, we went to a a Christmas brunch of uh, businessmen and friends. Uh, It was so much fun. Sam Hollander was there, you know, who produces and co-writes with Panic at the Disco and the legendary Ron Dalsner, you know, one of the greatest concert promoters of all time. He was there. And my my manager, uh, Winston Simone, he hosted it. And it was at Mark's off Madison. And, you know, Mark's is a legendary, you know, Jeff, and it, it was just so great. And so if you go on desmond.child and you go in my bios and all that, there are links to be able to buy the book. And also, brand new, these friends of mine, you know, because uh they're fantastic family, the Leuzzi family, they're Italian, and they've had this kind of private branding cosmetic company ever since the early 1950s. The grandfather started it back in the day. And so they said, we want to make you your own like cosmetic line. I said, okay. So we worked on it like for a long time and I chose everything about it and it's all natural and it's called Vita Loca Skin Life. And if you go to VitaLocaSkinLife.com, you can actually order the cream or the oil or both. And it's really reasonable. I mean, you know, it's like if you try to buy like Brad Pitt's cream, it's like $400. Like we're like $50. And the only thing is that if you use his cream, you know, and you use it consistently, you end up looking like him. I can't promise that. <laughs> I don't have that secret <laughs> ingredient in my cream, but you know, the, the, I love it because I always snuck, snuck into my mom's, uh, you know, bedroom and she had all these little bottles and lotions and potions and creams. And I'd like put them on and smell them and all this. And I love scents. and all of that. So it's like a little fantasy, like fun thing. And we sort of soft launched it. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of cute, you know, uh, to try to do something like that. But our, our, our slogan is skin has no gender, you know, and it's he, it's he, she, they, them, us, every pronoun I could think of. Uh, And I think that, you know, men and women can, can use it. And it has like this natural retinol that kind of gives a glow, you know, so it, I use it. Look at me. Hey, I'm
0: 70. Hey, I, who, exactly. So you know, who would guess se- 70, years old? 70 is the
1: new 70. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Desmond, thank you so much for, for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. So being so close to the holidays and glad we could uh, reschedule this. So thank you very much yes. for your time.
1: Thank you so much.